There was a prophetess, Anna, the daughter of Phanuel and of the tribe of Asher. And she was advanced in years, having lived with her husband seven years from when she was a virgin, and then as a widow until she was 84. She did not depart from the temple, worshiping with fasting and prayer night and day. And coming up at that very hour, she began to give thanks to God and to speak of him to all, to all who were waiting for the redemption of Jerusalem. This is the word of the Lord. Uh, let's pray. Father, as we uh, open your scripture this morning and see this brief snapshot of this faithful woman named Anna, who waited faithfully to, to encounter the baby Jesus in the temple, um, God, would you, you let this brief snapshot of this picture of this life we get be an encouragement to our own lives as we seek to follow you in all that we do. We ask this in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, depending on your perspective, we are either three, years, three days away from a new year or three days away from the end of an old year. I think even this morning, a couple, years, uh, a couple of, of people mentioned, yeah, it's like I'm another year older, right? That's one way to look at January 1st. Or another uh, way to look at it is it's a fresh start. It's a new opportunity, right? That, that we think of January 1 as, as either this year I mean it or last year I didn't really mean it. That's where the new year comes. And when I think about 2020, it's going to be a really important year for, for our community, for as, um, as a church. As I mentioned in the, the greeting, I mean, this is hopefully, uh, most likely the year we move from being a mobile church for five years to having a building, but not just having a building, actually having a building in, on the most visible road in our community, a road that, that 30, 40,000 cars drive by every day. And I've thought a lot about that. I don't know what all that means. I don't know if it means much of anything. Um, but I have wondered this, is when, when people see that, that space, and not just the building, but the community in it, because that's what the church is, is people, when they see us as a community, what will they see? And my vision, my hope, my prayer for, for 2020 is, is we lean into becoming a community of increasing joy in 2020. Because this is going to be a a year where most people are angry and grumpy and upset with one another. It's an election year. And I wonder, as a church community, will we be a viable alternative to the anger, the dissolution, the frustration of the the culture around us? Or will we be just one more community contributing to it? I don't want to be that. Because no one's really interested in joining a community of grumpy people. They want to, only community you want to be a part of is a part of a community of joy. And when I read this short account of this woman named Anna, I feel like it's a really good entry point into 2020 for all of us to begin thinking about what it means to be a community of, of joy. Because this brief snapshot of Anna, it, it provides a wonderful snapshot into what an encounter with Jesus should look like and should lead to. That it begins uh, with this basic posture of, of coming to Jesus in need. And it leaves in, a, in an outpouring of gratitude, joy, and thanksgiving. So just a two-point sermon this morning. Uh, point one is, is, what does it mean to be in a posture of need? And what does it mean then to encounter Jesus and, and leave with an outpouring of joy? So first, uh, the posture of Need. And we don't know much about this woman, Anna. This is the one snapshot we get of her. It's two verses. 
But we learn a few things that, are, that actually give us a significant picture into what her life was like. That, that first, she was, she was a widow. And the language is a little confusing, but probably what, what's true is she was married for seven years, and then her husband died a very early death, and she was a widow for a very long time, up until the point she was 84 years old, which meant most of her life was spent as, as a widow. And widows in, in this day were, were incredibly vulnerable. Um, they often were more likely to be, to be poor, to lack community. And it's why if you read through the Hebrew Bible, um, the, whenever God is mentioned as having a special heart, it, it's almost always that God cares for the widow and the orphan, the two most vulnerable people in society, the child without parents or the woman without, uh, with whom her husband died. And, and in, in a day, you know, think, think economically vulnerable. If, if you're a woman, you had a harder time making a living in that day than you do, you might now. And so Anna lived most of her life in this position of need and vulnerability. She was a widow. But secondly, she was, she was, also, she was a worshiper. She was in the temple all of the time. And her worship apparently was so real, so genuine, she was known as a prophetess, which, you know, could mean a lot of things, but what it definitely meant was she had this special insight into the will of God, and, and because she had this special insight, she could speak that into the lives of other people. She could give them fresh, unique insight from God to them because she was so connected in God through worship. She wasn't just a widow. She wasn't just a person of vulnerability. She was also a worshiper, and this... This particularly meant that Anna is described as a woman of prayer and fasting. And those are two practices that are are core to Jesus as well. In fact, in the Sermon on the Mount, Jesus gives three basic practices of his followers. And it's giving to the poor, almsgiving. It's fasting and it's prayer. And Anna was a woman of prayer and fasting. And so from this posture of need, a person of vulnerability, a person uh, at great risk... She took that, that, that posture of need and she approached God with it in prayer and in fasting. And what we do as a response to our own needs is one of the most defining features of our human experience. And so that's probably where, as we begin a new year, a question to reflect on. When I'm in need, what do I do? What's my response? And, and one, I think, posture we all have living in this cultural moment is, is often our response to need is to consume. Right? I need, therefore, I consume. We buy something. We watch something. We reach for distraction. And that's actually, it's not a mistake. We actually live in a, a very intentional discipleship pathway in our culture that has discipled us into this reality of I need, therefore, I consume. And I've been doing some research and, and reading on our modern advertising industry, how we got to where we, we got to, why we have this sense of I, I need, therefore, a product I can buy can be a response, um, can be a way to help me. And there's an interesting documentary uh, that was done by PBS called Century of Self. And in that documentary, it tells the story of Sigmund Freud's nephew, Edward Bernays. And Bernays was really interesting because he, he learned from his uncle early in his life about what human beings are and what, what causes them to act in certain ways. And Freud's basic thinking that he taught to his nephew was, human beings basically run on two feelings, I want and I fear. And so Bernays, when he came to the U.S., basically took those two ideas and applied them to modern advertising to get us to, to be convinced that, that what we want or what we fear can be, res- can be solved by consuming a product. So this, this one example of what he did. 
In the 1920s, it was considered so, a social taboo for women, uh, women, to, uh, women to, to smoke. Right? So men smoked, women didn't. And like, the cigarette industry quickly realized that's a 50% market we're not tapping into because it's considered wrong or improper or indecent for a woman to smoke. And so Bernays intentionally went about making us, us, like sort of removing that taboo of cigarette smoking from women. And so what he did was he tapped into desire. And he carefully crafted cigarettes as images of torches of freedom for women. Right in this day, women's right to vote had just been passed. Oftentimes, the expectation of women were, were you had one career path in life, which was to be a mom and a wife and to, um, to serve the needs of the men in your life. And so it wasn't a particularly freeing society to women. And so sort of he, he noticed the, the, the rise of feminism. He jumped on that wave and cigarettes became a symbol of freedom and, and, uh, and power to women, which they're not. They're cigarettes. You just smoke them. They give you a taste and then you blow that taste out. That's all that is. And yet in 10 years, four times as many women began smoking in our culture because he tapped into this want, this desire, this need. And this is, this is what all of our modern advertising is built on, is I want, I fear, I need, therefore I consume. I buy this product and a need is met. And so even someone who's not a believer in God has recognized this. In the book Fight Club, Chuck Palahniuk uh, he sort of, it's all built on this like rejection of, of modern consumption society. Here's what Tyler Durden says in Fight Club. Reject the basic assumptions of civilization, especially the importance of material possessions. That today we live in houses that are twice as large as they were just a few decades ago, but our families are half the size. We struggle with personal debt, living paycheck to paycheck in ways that are not true of past generations. And in light of all this, Christian author Richard Foster writes, we in the West are guinea pigs in one huge economic experience in consumption. And if it's, it's, it's not just buying things, it's the distractions available to us to consume a show, to watch or tap into a feed, to reach for our devices, which are distraction machines designed to get your attention as much as possible. I need, therefore, I consume. And all of us are discipled into this, this pathway. And in contrast to that, the life of Anna is I need, therefore, I fast. I need, therefore, I pray. And so these two central practices, I, as you think about 2020, I just want to encourage you to think about what might it look like for these practices to enter into your life rhythm. I'll just talk about them both briefly. First, fasting. But today, we, we talk about fasting in a number of different ways. It's, you know, fasting from media, like Lent is typically, like, I'm going to fast from chocolates or from one particular thing. But in the Bible, fasting is always a fast from eating anything. And sometimes more intentional fasts or even uh, no liquids as well. But, but most fasts in the Bible are not, not eating. It's a, a, a pulling back from food. Which is, I've always like, why? And of course, like in the scriptures, we are whole beings. We're not just physical bodies. We're not just spiritual beings. We're whole bodies. And so fasting is a way we tap into that reality. By, by refraining from, from a physical need, we, we approach our whole existence, uh, physical, spiritual, emotional. And just to give you this, an example of this, I, I can't explain to you how this works. I just know it works. 
A few months ago, I had a meeting I was going into. No one in this room, to be clear. Uh, but I was going into a meeting. And I, was, I, I fasted the day before just to prepare for it, to get ready for it, to pray, pray ahead of it. And when I went into that meeting, before, like five minutes before that meeting, I was, I was anxious. I was frustrated. I was angry. I was just feeling all of these emotions uh, going into this meeting. And then when I walked into this meeting, like my whole like, just demeanor was different. I can't explain it to you. I don't know why. I mean, like, literally, I walk into the meeting, and my, my spirit just changed. And I, I attach that to, I spent a day tapping into this physical reality that's connected to my, it's just, God, I'm not going to eat for this day, because I need you. I need you to be present. I need you in ways that, I, that are, are more profound even than I, than I need food. And fasting is a way in which we, we do that. And so I, it's hard to explain, but here, I, John Piper has a pretty good explanation. So here's how he explains fasting. Since most of us run the risk of being overly sensualized simply by having every craving satisfied and rarely pausing in a moment of self-denial to discover if there are alive within us spiritual appetites that could satisfy us at a much deeper level than food. Right, fasting is a way of us saying to God, there is no physical experience of pleasure that matches knowing you. Right? My hunger is not for this world, it's for you, God. And I'm going to enter into a period of time where I, make, I sort of push my physical body into that space of denying physical pleasure desire to seek the, the true desire pleasure that comes from God alone. Which is why I think, one of the reasons why Jesus, as I mentioned a second ago, in the Sermon on the Mount, he gave three practices he expected of his disciples. It was giving to the poor, it was prayer, and it was fasting. There's something uniquely important about this. And so if you're, if you're physically capable of this, I, I urge you to fast this year. I mean, we'll give you help. Uh, there will be a couple moments coming up. Uh, in fact, a sermon a couple weeks ago, Jesus began his entire ministry life with a fast. So fasting, I, just, how, I need, therefore I'm not going to watch something. I'm not going to buy something. I'm not going to eat. I need, therefore, I fast. That was one practice Anna built her life on. The other is, is prayer. Um, and I, I, this is a unique word for prayer, actually, in the New Testament. It's not the typical word of prayer that's used. And the word that, that's said of Anna's prayer life here, it comes from a Greek word, which means to lack or to be in need of. Um, and Luke uses this, this word for prayer to sort of, sort of make a point about what prayer is, which prayer is, is to, to, to approach God from a position of need, a position of lack, a position of want. And so that's what, what Anna does. She goes and she, she prays. And, and prayer is the place where more than any other we acknowledge our need, our lack, our insufficiency, and God's completeness, his power, his sufficiency. It's where we go into the throne room of the universe, asking, seeking, but all of it in need. I guess if... If we can offer anything as a community, probably to this world, in the next year especially, it's the, you know, for everyone else who just knows the right solution that would just solve all of our complex problems in the world, and if you just, if you just voted for this or did that, everything would go away. Into that, a community who is actually, we don't have the answers. We, we are incomplete, we're incomplete, we need, we lack, and so therefore we are people of prayer, seeking God in a complex world, needing him. People in need. I need, therefore, I fast. I need, therefore, I pray. If, if we do anything in the year to come as a community, may we approach God not with self-sufficient, closed hands, having figured out the world, 
but as people in need. And ultimately, that is, that is the way into the life with Jesus, right? It's, it's the, the way into life with Jesus is repentance, which is to say, like, I'm going this way, and it's not working. So therefore, Jesus, you, like, you show me the way, right? You, you take me in your direction. The basic posture entering into the Christian life is one of need. And prayer and fasting are two practices we do to tap into that reality of how we all started in the Christian life, which is I'm a sinner in need of the grace of God, and he welcomes me. He brings me in, not because I have something to offer him. Actually, he brings me in because I have nothing to offer him. And prayer and fasting is where we tap into that need and that grace where God provides what we do not have ourselves. So prayer and fasting, I need, therefore I, I pray, need, therefore I fast. Anna comes to God in a position of need. She, she encounters the baby of Jesus. And then I, I love what we read, the last words we read of her. Um, she comes, uh, her posture is worshiping with fasting and prayer night and day. And coming up at that very hour, she began to give thanks to God and to speak of him to all who are waiting for the redemption of Jerusalem. She began to give thanks to, to God, which in, in, in the Greek, giving thanks and joy, they're, they're, the, they're the same idea, the same um, word, the same concept. She encounters Jesus. She comes in a position of need, prayer and fasting, worship, and she leaves giving thanks to God, heart full of gratitude, ready to share it with those she encountered. I think what a wonderfully brief image of what life with Jesus should look like. We, we, we as human beings are people of need. We encounter Jesus and we become people of thanks. And so that leads to the question, how does an encounter with Jesus, if we know him, if we follow him, if he saved us, how does an encounter with Jesus lead us to become people of outpouring joy? I just want to give you two thoughts to that. If you encounter Jesus, it should put you on a trajectory of joy for a couple of reasons. One is there is so much to adore and be thankful for about God. And of course, God, Jesus, same way. Right? Like, meditate on the person of Jesus, and there is so much to be thankful for and so much to adore. And you read this throughout the Bible. So many of the prayers in the Bible are prayers of, of adoration, where someone's just sitting back in awe of who God is. Just a couple examples. Psalm 8 begins, O Lord, our Lord, how majestic is your name in all of the earth. You set your glory above the heavens. And we, the psalm is it's imagining looking at the stars, the skies, creation, and just saying God's glory is greater than all of this. Or Psalm 103, bless the Lord, O my soul, forget not all of his benefits. He forgives sins. He redeems our life from the pit. He crowns us with steadfast love and mercy. God is a forgiving, gracious God who crowns his people with his love and his faithfulness and his mercy. Or Psalm 16, it ends this way. You have, you have made known to me the path of life. In your presence there is fullness of joy. At your right hand are pleasures forevermore. My God, you're the, the giver of all good things. Now, just, if, if you have the rhythm of prayer in your life, how much of your, your prayer life is just... It's just speaking thanks and sitting in awe of who God is. And to be clear, there are lots of different types of prayers in the Bible. There's laments, there's requests. But I think this is one element of prayer I really lack in my own life, which is, is just sitting back in awe and adoration of who God is and thanking him for who he is. And, and, and starting there from a place of, 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 of 
Gratefulness and gratitude is crucial to joy. Uh, I've been listening to the podcast, The Happiness Lab, which is it's a podcast by Dr. Lori Santos, who's a professor of psychology and cognitive science at Yale University. And a few years ago, she began to notice that her, her students were uh, increasing in depression and sadness. And she was really concerned about um, that, which tracks with larger cultural trends. We're more anxious, we're more sad, we're more depressed than cultures in history. And so she created a, a class actually on happiness. It's a happiness class. And one of the most, she, she assigned homework, but it wasn't like, you know, write a paper on happiness. She assigned practices that she knew, based on cognitive science, would lead to, to happier students. And the, one of the crucial practices she gave to her students was a nightly homework assignment of writing down five things they were thankful for. Every night, five things they were thankful for. Because studies have consistently shown if you do that, if you practice gratitude and, and speak your thankfulness out loud, your brain actually fires new, uh, uh, new pathways that, that go to the joy center of your brain and increase your personal happiness. And what I like, take that cognitive science, apply, apply it to, to the God of the Bible, and it's we have, we have so many reasons to be thankful because of the God of the universe, who he is. Because I think often what can happen in, in outside of God happiness is we create really shallow things we're thankful for. Or like the things we're thankful for just cover up the sadness, the, the real broken realities of this world. But the God of the Bible takes all of that into consideration and in, in who he is and what his person is and give us deep reasons to be grateful, to adore him, to be thankful because of who he is. The Christians, more than anyone else, should be able to write five things down, right? I mean, I gave you those psalms, right? It's God forgives us. His glory is set above the heavens. His right hands are pleasures forevermore. He's a joyful, good being. We have so much to be grateful for in, in the person of who God is. And Anna, Anna encounters the salvation through Jesus, just the baby Jesus. And she leaves full of gratitude because she knows what the salvation is going to mean for this world. And if we want to be a community welcoming new people in, in this coming year and, you know, a, a visible place of our community, we need to be people of gratitude and joy, giving thanks to God for who he is. For the next couple of minutes, if you are, if you are a fan of the University of Illinois, I just want you to not listen to the next two minutes of the sermon, okay? Uh, but the college I went to, it was uh, about an hour from Champaign, Illinois, which is where the University of Illinois is. And, and what, what I grew up in Indiana, which meant I was a, I'm a huge fan of Indiana University athletics, but when I was in college, Indiana was not good at basketball, and University of Illinois was really good at basketball. It was just at the end of the Bill Self era and the beginning of the Bruce Weber era, which for some reason I just keep following them around wherever I go. But Illinois, they were really good, but the fans that I, I encountered at my college were so obnoxious about it. There were a group of us IU fans, we would watch IU games together, Indiana University games uh, together. Because we did, like we're from Indiana, we all grew up watching games as kids, so we would watch games in the lobby of our dorm. This is, by the way, this is a Bible college with all future preachers, just to be clear, all future pastors. But these Illinois fans would walk in and they would just start trash talking Indiana. And Illinois first is like, you've never won a national championship, let's just remember that. To begin with, second of all, you, it's Champaign, Illinois, have you been there, right? It's not a great place. If they just come in, they would trash talk. They would be just obnoxious fans. And most of the time, Indiana would be losing, uh, so it would not help things. But I just remember, like, even though they were really good, and I had every reason to, like, just sort of become an Illinois fan for those couple years when they were really fun and good to watch. I hate Illinois to this day. To this day, I take pleasure in Illinois losing games, even though I don't know any Illinois fans anymore, and I have no reason to feel that way. It's because this obnoxious community of fans were not fun to be around, 
and made, just made everyone around them miserable because for two years they were actually good at something. <clears throat> now, if you're a University of Illinois fan, you may re-enter the sermon. Uh, I hope you weren't listening. But, like, no one wants to join a community of grumpy people. And as I said, like, this year, this country is going to be full of grumpy, angry, dissatisfied people. And I hope we spend our time in gratitude and adoration of God so that we can provide a viable alternative to a community of anger, dissolution, divisiveness. We can be something different. And we're going to have that opportunity this year. We're going to be in the most visible place of our city. People are going to look at us. Whether it's just the outside of a building, whether they come in or not, we're going to be visible in a way we have never been. And I don't want to, I just, I remember sitting in that lobby and those fans walking in and just thinking, here we go. I don't want to be that community. And I think a lot of people look at the church and anytime a Christian walks in the room, it's like, here we go. Just give me your lecture. Let's hear it. I don't want to be that. And so much of that starts with us sitting in adoration and praise of God. And we have so much to endure about our God. Secondly, uh, we are, we're not just forgiven by God. We're actually united to Christ. That's what, the, that's what the gospel is. I read a book. I don't remember what it was. But, the, you know, the gospel, the good news of Christianity isn't just that you're forgiven of sin. isn't just that you get to go to heaven one day when you die. It's actually Jesus himself is the gospel. And he enters into your life. You're united to him. All that's good about him, you get. All that's true about him, you get to be true of you as, as well. And one of the most powerful places this, this is talked about is in Galatians 2, where Paul writes this about being united with Christ. I have been crucified with Christ. It's no longer I who live, but Christ who lives in me. In the life I now live in the flesh, I live by faith in the Son of God who loved me and gave himself for me. It's the fundamental truth of what it is to be a Christian, is to be united with him. His life is yours. Your life is now his. And why is that important? That the reason is why I believe that Jesus is the happiest being in the universe. It's a line, Dallas Willard said that about God. God's the happiest being in the universe since I believe in the Trinity. Jesus is God. Jesus is the happiest being in the universe. Just, just let that sink in for a minute. Jesus is not just... Not just powerful, not just all good, not just incredible. He is a joy-filled being. And you are united with him if you are a Christian. And listen, I want to be honest. Like, there's a lot of evil. There's a lot of suffering in the world. And yes, and we'll talk about that in sermons from time to time. I hope you've been around with me long. I don't, I don't hide those things. And yet, even though there's a lot of evil and suffering in the world, there's also a lot of, of gratuitous beauty. Mountains that that went undiscovered for centuries, that God created, no one saw. He just created for his own, his own pleasure. Sunsets with more colors than Crayola could ever hope to invent. And animals that are hilarious. For example, look at the naked Morad. Like, you can't look at that animal and not be like, God exists and he's, he's funny. <laughs> like, he, he invented that. Or uh, take a look at the, the star-nosed mole. It's like creation is full of these, like these creative things that, that is a, a sign of joy and happiness in life, that God made this place. And so Annie Dillard, uh, she talks about this uh, in her book, uh, which I totally forgot the meaning, or the title, I didn't write it down, but she wrote this in her Pulitzer Prize winning book. Uh, it's really good. Uh, Pilgrim at Tinker Creek, that's it. Here's what she writes. It's this moment in her life. So there seems to be such a thing as beauty, a grace wholly gratuitous. 
About five years ago, I saw a mockingbird make a straight vertical descent from a roof gutter of a four-story building. It was an act as careless and spontaneous as the curl of a stem or the kindling of a star. The mockingbird took a single step in the air and dropped, his wings still folded against his sides as though he were singing from a limb and not falling, accelerating at 32 feet per second through empty air. Just a breath before he would have been dashed to the ground, he unfurled his wings with exact deliberate care, revealing the broad bars of white, spread his elegant white-banded tail, and so floated onto the grass. I had just rounded a corner when his step caught my eye. There was no one else in sight. The fact of his free fall was like the old philosophical conundrum about the tree that falls in the forest. The answer must be, I think, that beauty and grace are performed whether or not we will sense them. The least we can do is try to be there. There's two things I really love about that. First is, is there are moments like that happening all over creation that no one will ever see. Gratuitous beauty. Birds in flight. A sunset. A tree, a mountain. But two, she, she makes the point, like, we should, we should be looking for this. Like, the least we can do is try to be there. And I wonder how many of us, like, pause to see the beauty of this world and to, to realize this, this place is the idea of a happy, joyful being who made a good place that is broken, yes. And yet, there is still so much beauty breaking through. And so I began this morning by asking, how do you, how do you see 2020, right? January 1st, is it, is it another year older or is it a fresh new, new start? It doesn't matter. Whatever 2020 is to bring, make 2020 about encountering Jesus. Coming to him in a posture of need, praying to him, fasting before him, worshiping him, bring your sorrows, your hopes, your dreams, take it all to him in a posture of need. And in that place of need, meet the person of Jesus, a person who is so committed to you and to me, he put himself in the place of need. He left the riches of heaven to become an infant child. He spent his time not among the rich, but among the Annas, the widows, those seeking God in need, the orphans, the poor, the blind, the sick, to heal them, to climb on a cross, to take all the needs of this universe onto himself, to go into a grave, to rise to new life, and to say, come and be united with me. The happiest being in the universe, the most powerful being in the universe. The Gospel of Luke begins with an encounter with, with Jesus. And Anna leaves in outpouring joy. Right? She comes in need, she leaves in joy. And that's actually how the Gospel of Luke ends. Disciples who are sad that their, 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 their master Jesus has been crucified and killed, and they don't yet know it's, they're actually talking to the resurrected Jesus. And so they have this encounter with the resurrected Jesus, and when they, they realize they're talking to the resurrected Jesus, we read... And they worshipped him and returned to Jerusalem with great joy. If you meet Jesus, you start in a place of need. And you will end in a place of joy. And may that be our community in 2020. Let's pray. Father, as, as we pray, I go, I go to Psalm 70 where we read, May all who seek you rejoice and be glad in you. May those who love your salvation say evermore, God is great. 
And then we read, but I am poor and needy. Hasten to me, O God. You are my help, my deliverer. Do not delay. Now that's the prayer ultimately of every person in this, this room. We are, we are people who are poor and needy, weak, independent. And, in, and from that place, we, we go to so many different places to, to fill that need, to fill that want, to respond to that fear. And Lord, as we think about a new year, as we think about a new place, a new, a new season, God, we, we want to be people who respond to our need, to our want, to our fear, to our poorness with approaching Jesus, that he would take our need, he would take our poverty, he would take our weakness and turn it into joy. We cannot do that ourselves. We do not have that in ourselves. And so we come to the person of Jesus repeatedly in need, trusting that, that the joy which filled him and fills him to this day would fill us as well. And we ask this all in his name, the name of Jesus Christ, we pray. Amen.